From Nordic Institute and the Sault Ste. Marie Innovation Center's Rural Agri-Innovation Network, we are committed to promoting resilient Northern Ontario communities. Over the years, we have built local economies, attracted young people to education and employment opportunities, and bridged the gaps between communities, funders, and leaders. Now we are partnering to bring you a brand new podcast series, The PackSec Project. If you have ever packed for a trail hike, you may have thought, did I really need to pack this expensive camera gear? What is essential to this trip? The PackSack Project is all about exploring the essential relationships, attitudes, and mindsets that Northern communities need as we adapt to change and challenges. Without further ado, let me introduce you to today's host, David Thompson. In rural Northern Ontario, we can be stuck in the mindset of chasing the next manufacturing or mining business to our communities. These companies promise jobs and opportunity for young people to stay. However, we tend to forget about how other sectors, tourism, negra food being some, that can have a big impact. We hear a lot in the news lately about the great resignation, people are dissatisfied with their current jobs and are seeking new opportunities or entrepreneurial aspirations. What better time than for Northern communities to attract entrepreneurs? Today, I'm speaking with Jerry Brandon, an executive chef who returned to his hometown to start up a few businesses that is attracting many tourists to the town of Haleybury. We explore how rural communities can support entrepreneurship and how he has responded to the demand for local tourism in a pandemic. So today I'm joined with Jerry Brandon of L'Autochtone Taverne Americaine. It's an indigenous urban style bar and grill in downtown Haleybury. Welcome to the program, Jerry. Are you able to just start us off with our conversation by introducing yourself? Yeah, I'm Jerry Brandon. My spirit name is uh, Nijigwakamikadin, which means uh, frost on the ground. I'm a member of Dogi's First Nation, which is on the French River below uh, Lake Nipissing. And I grew up as a 60s scoop child in uh, New Liskert, Ontario, which is, uh, I never thought I'd be in far north, but I guess some people do. If you're from Toronto, it's a good five and a half, six hour drive north. So a small community straddling a lake that's 90 miles long with a border of Quebec right down the middle of it. So it's an interesting community being that it, it has three very distinct cultures here, and that's the Francophone, Anglophone, and Indigenous cultures. That was my beginning. Okay. And I guess that led to um, your first job in the corporate world. How did you get there? That's a long story. I uh, left home early, being the only tan face in the classroom in the wintertime in, in, uh, anywhere in, in Canada, I think at that time, was not necessarily a positive thing. Uh, so I, you know, I had the usual struggles with school and education, and I quit high school at, at 15, going on 16, and left. I ended up uh, from time to time sleeping on the streets. I developed a heroin addiction, got involved with gangs, and generally had a pretty tough life as a teenager, only to uh, succumb to addiction and, and eventually end up hospitalized and in the penal system and that sort of thing. So, you know, I managed to turn myself around via that and then, and then was looking for something next. And uh, somehow I ended up in business school uh, and went through and got a college diploma at that point. And, you know, later on went on for university MBA and stuff like that. I uh, ended up starting in a, in a factory in Southern Ontario and worked my way up from a receiver to being a corporate planner. You know, I planned a manufacturing operation in Southern Ontario. I don't I can't remember what it was at the time. Eight early 80s, six and a half million in Canada. I ran 14 or 18 warehouses across the United States and ended up traveling on business. But I got the bug for cooking. That was my hobby. 
as a hobby, it was, you know, I've always been artistic. It's, I've always been hands, very hands-on. I like to work. I don't like sitting behind a desk. I don't like the real corporate world. And you studied business yourself, right? So, you know, I came up in the 80s and I saw the very beginning of what I think of as vulture capitalism. I've always had a difficulty with the ethical side of things. I think it's possible. And I think I've proven it here in doing what I do today that you can be excellent to your staff and you can care about the world and still manage a profit. The world of, of my father, let's say, who invested in blue collar stocks in the hopes that he'd make a, a reasonable income over a period of time versus the average investor today going, they want to invest in the morning. If they can't get a profit out of it, by the end of the day, they're going to short it and try to get something out of it tomorrow kind of thing. It just wasn't for me. So I packed it all in and paid my way into Stratford Chef School, which was incredibly difficult to get into at the time. I think they were taking like 1,200 applications for 50 positions, and you pretty much had to be working at a great restaurant already, or you wouldn't get in. I basically asked them, I said, I'm living in London, Ontario right now. What's the best restaurant in London? They said, the Aubert's de Petit Prince. I, I walked in the back door of the Aubert's and said, uh, look, I'll work here for free until you feel I have some value to you. And I literally worked there for a few months for nothing, and then they started paying me and working two jobs, still working as a planner, cooking in the, at night on weekends. And uh, I became a sous chef at that restaurant before I was finished chef school. And that was the beginning of my culinary career. And I worked at with, uh, you know, some very famous chefs and I've been on television. I was getting quite well known in the 80s, uh, late 80s, early 90s, I guess. So in lots of magazines and television and not the celebrity chefs of today where there's so many television programs, there were hardly any cooking programs back then. But I worked for Relaisy Chateau, Relais Gourmand, uh, Five Star Five Diamond Hotels as executive chef. Like, Ben Miller in became, went from three-star, two-diamond to five-star, four-diamond, getting his fifth while I was there. I went to Langdon Hall. I worked in Toronto with Jamie Kennedy and Michael Statlander and Suzer Lee, and I worked with Von Garrison in New York, uh, Michelin, three-star. I ended up getting headhunted to Vancouver eventually, and I went into the Wedgwood Hotel at Bacchus, which is a five-star hotel, boutique hotel downtown. Again, I ended up at one point running the largest private caterer in Western Canada doing things like Molson Indy Vancouver, 8,000 meals a day sort of thing, running seven kitchens and hundreds of cooks working for me. So after a lot of travel, you settled in Haleyberry to start Le Tocton. Can you describe the restaurant and its place in Temiskaming? So anyways, this was somehow became like a social experiment in the sense that we, if we took a restaurant that's very city, very urban and, and how it's approached, so meaning it's going to be smaller, tighter, wall-to-wall, tables closer together, shoulder to shoulder, very much something like Brooklyn or uh, Queen Street West or Saint-Denis in Montreal or Granville Street in Vancouver, where space is at a premium, a little open kitchen, uh, high style, high design, very conceptualized. And what if you took that and you plopped it into a small northern Ontario town? Well, a small town in general. Originally, we were looking at Nova Scotia. So what drew us here was the fact that my, my adoptive brother was still here in Haleybury and uh, and he said, well, come back for a visit and we'll have a look and maybe you could do it here. And I was looking at, uh, you know, business plans said 21,000 people and there's not that many people here. And I said, I don't know if I can do it, but we'll come and have a look. Uh, what really drew us here was the fact that we're able to visit and see uh, an urban fair that's across the lake from us in uh, Ville-Marie in Quebec called Foire Gourmand. So it's like a gourmet fair that takes place in August every year. And it was drawing something like seven, 8,000 people under a, a tent size of three football fields. And, and that completely blew me away that, that there was enough interest in gourmet foods and quality food products, quality growth, great agriculture in the area, 
all of this was happening and bringing about some real innovation in one place. And I thought, well, if I can draw my circle a little bigger than the Timiskaming Shores, and I start to hit Filmery and I hit uh, Notre Dame de Nord, we suddenly, next, you know, we're looking at 21,000 people and enlarged my circle and said, let's give it a shot. And that's how it started. So we found a building and we kind of bought it sight unseen from Vancouver. And I knew what the building had been in the past growing up here. But we uh, came in and pretty much gutted it down to the bare walls and built a restaurant. Yeah. And certainly the restaurant contrasts the norms, I guess, of restaurants in the north. So could you just describe like what that might look like? The typical, typical restaurant across the north is, tends to be driven by what it's capable of bringing in as for materials. And often the people that are doing them are not truly hospitality professionals necessarily. Whether how they've fallen into it, it's a variety of different reasons, but they're easy prey to the really large suppliers like Cisco, which is basically to me the Walmart of food service, you know, where they want to direct you towards specific products and they want to tell you how you can make money. So the next thing you know, you're using a lot of pre-made, pre-frozen, pre-packaged, processed ingredients, and that's pretty much the norm across the north. To have a restaurant that comes in and starts up from scratch every day using raw materials, some of it locally sourced as much as I can. It takes time to build that. We're building some good relationships now, and I think that will only continue. We have foragers that from First Nations that work for us. We have very specific sprouts and greens growers that are local, and one up in Timmins that's doing it hydroponically. So we're getting some good movement that way, and there's still lots and lots of opportunity. Is education and just sort of teaching people what a small restaurant is capable of. Like I said, this was designed to be a social experiment on my part. What happens to a community that's basically dead because of Walmart, where there's nothing happening on this in the entire town, no grocery stores anymore, no nothing, and I take and I plunk a little restaurant down and pop it in there. And now three years later, there's a, a brew pub across the road. There's a holistic healing center down the corner. There's a guy doing Reiki massage just around us, art gallery on the other corner. And since that, we've opened uh, Buster's Mini Mart, which was an iconic uh, store in this town, uh, in a Vancouver hybrid manner, where it's a Starbucks, it's a deli, it's a specialty foods store, an imported goods store, and it's a market that has been here and just has had nowhere to shop. So, you know, at this point, our number one response for people walking into this restaurant, it's like stepping out of Northern Ontario and into Toronto or Montreal or Brooklyn or Georgetown or Vancouver, or Seattle, then that's the reason they're coming here. We have probably 40% of our clientele come out of Quebec. And we have people, a lot of, large portion of them come from Rouen Randa, which is two hours drive each direction. And they come down here, they're going, we're looking for the city experience. It's 11 hours to Montreal, and we can drive two hours to Haleberry and have that city experience and leave happy and have a great time. We can stay overnight if we want, and then go back the next morning. So they make a weekend of it. And from an economic perspective, you know, we're, as a business, while well, the two businesses together now, put about half a million back into the community in terms of wages and what we purchase locally. We have 40% of that is coming from outside of our district. We're a microeconomy unto ourselves almost. This is the way things were, in my mind, certainly in the way that I remember them growing up when the streets were full of cars end to end on Saturdays and people shopped at the local stores and instead of getting in their car and driving 15 miles to Walmart or God forbid you're 80 years old and you get on a bus at $5 each direction to ride 40 minutes each way to get to Walmart and back with your groceries. So that's what changes communities. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly a number of communities across the North are kind of facing the same thing. I mean, what 
maybe advice would you have for people in leadership positions, either counselors or people that are working for towns to support entrepreneurs like you to set up? Uh, I think it's really sad that one of the biggest things I noticed coming here is little traveled your average city councillor or city employee is. They haven't gone very far. They haven't visited many towns. I got into a bit of a spat with the city because like, they own a piece of land beside the restaurant that I wanted to use for a patio and they turned it down. They had something called the Corporate Services Committee, which in a town of what totals like ten or 12,000 people, a corporate services committee. The only corporations here are McDonald's and uh, Canadian Tire and Walmart. But they had this committee say that we couldn't have this patio without any reason. Long story short, I ended up speaking to city council direct. I had to leave the service, run off the cooking line and run down to city hall and and give a short speech in front of city council. And unfortunately, I had enough support at that time that the whole building was full of people waiting to see what I had to say. And I told them, I said, the thing that you don't understand here, and, and this applies to so many places across the north, is that where I lived in Vancouver, I could drive from the north part of BC all the way down to Mexico on the coast highways. And I said, you'll come across thousands of towns like Haleberry. You can break it down into two types. The one type is sitting there going, everything will be fine when the mine reopens. Everything will be fine when the cannery starts up. Everything will be fine when the logging gets going again. Everything will be fine when the lumber mill goes. And I said, those towns are dead. They're dead. They're full of pawn shops and check cashing places and lawyers, and there's nothing happening there. I said, then the other type of town is a town that's focused on its heritage, its history, and its culture. Those towns are thriving, and they're thriving because they're drawing in tourism. They've got boutiques, they've got restaurants, they've got interesting events happening, and they're drawing people from all over the place. They've created their own economy just because they're situated in a beautiful place like Haleberry, and they've taken advantage of that. That's the way forward. Adding culture to a town brings people. Property values are skyrocketing here. People are stopping me on the street. The elderly woman stopped me on the street to tell me she'd moved here from Toronto because of our restaurant, saying that she can give up all the niceties of Toronto, but she can't give up one great restaurant. And then she goes, oh, and then you open Busters. Now I can buy all the imported goods that I usually get in Toronto anyway. She goes, who needs Toronto anymore? This is the approach, right? So can you rebuild these communities that have been basically, as far as I'm concerned, robbed by really poor planning approaches? dependent upon developments that line the highway in form of strip malls and Canadian tires and Home Depots and, God forbid, Walmart. Can you rebuild it and can you bring back that sense of community? And that's what's losing is we're losing our connection due to the mass influx of media that we see every day. People sit there looking at their phones. We have a restaurant that has no televisions and we don't give out any Wi-Fi. You watch people come in here from that can't speak English or French. They barely speak English sitting at a table side by side with a group of four that are English and barely speak French, and they're enjoying their food, they're having drinks, they're sitting there, and all of a sudden they're talking to each other across the table, making each other understood what a great time they're having. And they're doing it while being surrounded by a modern display of an Indigenous culture that shows it as a living, thriving, evolving culture, not as a tourist spot, not as something from history, but something that's alive and moving today. There was a woman in a couple of weeks back who said that she'd learned more about Indigenous culture in one night in this restaurant than she'd learned in her entire life through school, through education, and through her adult life. That's profound. And I think that sadly these days, it's uh, people discount what the independent restaurant is capable of doing because 
you know, if you look through history, look down through history, going all the way back to the earliest recording, like recipes and stuff of the 1500s in France, and they start talking about restaurateur, like restorative places on the highways and how people gathered, how political ideals are formed, how philosophy is formed, how partnerships are formed, how communities are built, and they're built in places where people gather to eat and drink. And I think that there are a lot of people that discount that. It's definitely not to their betterment, that's for sure. I got a sense that the restaurant is a celebration of different cultures. Can you take us through that? Well, yeah, it's a concept restaurant. Concept restaurant is hard to describe. It's built to do a certain thing. It's like the entire restaurant, every detail, every, like the choice of tiles, the choice of materials, the approach, like the lights, we have lights, they're black coated on the outside and copper inside. So when you step into the room, it looks like copper moons marching off into a distance. The tabletops are covered in real birch bark, not birch bark print, but real birch bark, surrounded by hundred year old cigar box sides. And we have a whole wall that's moss, right? It's reindeer-like and copper top bars because of the interest of copper to indigenous people with terms of drink and water. It's, there's so much in here that's very specific to a design and the food and everything goes with it. So it was, you know, it's not a thing about displaying. I mean, there's younger chefs out there that are doing their versions of what they would consider to be traditional indigenous foods. Often it's, they're gathering traditional indigenous ingredients and reinventing how they approach that and how they prepare it. This restaurant was about, it was my, I guess, my shot at reconciliation in the sense that can I bring people together in a, in a way that for, pushes the three cultures together and has people at least discussing and enjoying each other's company and time and to display what's possible for an Indigenous restaurant. You know, the reality of my life has been that, uh, and I hope this comes to an end soon, is that in order to be considered as good as, I had to be better than. And that's been my goal my entire life is to work to be better than in order to be just accepted. So here we are, and we create this restaurant, and I blend sort of three cultures. I use a lot of French techniques, occasionally a French or Quebecois-style dish, but I've played on it based on where I've lived and where I've traveled. So we do a thing called Ré de Cris, pig's ears, and what it is is it used to be just cracklings. That's a Quebecois thing. But what we do is we take pork belly, and we slow roast pork belly, and then we marinate it in uh, Chinese five spice and a few other things and, and then toss it with maple syrup and then serve it hot as a snack. And what it represents is it, it represents my time on the West Coast walking through Chinatown and looking at barbecue pork hanging in the windows of the Chinese restaurants and then blending that with growing up here and looking at what the Quebecois were eating as snacks. And so I end up with this sort of cross-combined cultural thing. So I try to do everything with a twist. I blend ingredients. I blend things from my travels. And I introduce people to flavors and things that they may not have experienced before. So that's educational in its own way. And I think it's often presented in a very city style. And it's hurried. It's rushed. It's fun. It's approachable more than anything. At the end of the day, when you're working in a restaurant that you finance yourself, you've still got to make a buck. That's not that easy these days, not in restaurants. People's perception of the value of food has deteriorated rather than increased. But it's small independence that'll hang on, I hope, and drive it forward. Yeah. And part of this challenge is training up uh, the next generation of food entrepreneurs that might be from the North or might want to come back to the North. How's that been going with your businesses in terms of this leaving your legacy? We've held our staff from the beginning. And but now we're into a philosophical approach to how we do things here. It's the way that my wife and I look at uh, what's called, I guess, the Eurocentric form of generational wealth. And my description is that generational wealth is gathered by a single family 
and passed on to their children who try to accrue even more and then pass it on to their children. And, and that's the common approach to things. And certainly the Anishinaabe or the Algonquin approach to life is more about community. It's not about individuals or individual families. You know, you do your best to take care of your family, but it's up to the community to raise a child. It's up to the community to take care of the entire community itself. So for us, it's the building this was about taking what we had and using it to create a better community around us because that's what's important to me and to my wife. So we do that and in the hopes of building a business that's sound, eventually, hopefully, we incorporate and then pass the ownership off to the people that are working with us. So not selling it to the staff, but giving it to them so they can take it and they can take and run with it and then see where they can go. And in an ideal world, they're making enough off of it to take care of me and my wife through our real retirement, which hopefully sooner rather than later, but we'll see. I think there's better ways to go about getting that experience that's required. And I think there's, without having to come out with a $50,000 debt working in a restaurant for a minimum wage, there's better ways. And I think Maybe that's for somebody else to do now, but I'll talk about it as long as anybody wants to talk to me about it, because it's you don't see a lot of professionals, certainly in the north. We've been very lucky. We've had a, a couple, some of our core team has come from Ottawa and work in reasonable restaurants in, in Ottawa or in North Bay. So we're doing OK. Mm-hmm. I guess as we close here, Jerry, you know, listening to this program, there might be other food entrepreneurs that are trying to get started in small towns around northern Ontario. Would you have any advice for them? Um. First, I'll go through my my biggest mistake. My biggest mistake was understanding contracting and cost of materials in the north. You know, I would think I was probably a little arrogant coming out of the city. I was used to a specific sort of approach to building. This is probably the eighth or ninth construction project I've been involved in, and I tend to work as general contractor myself. I think that was the mistake that I made was the costs were way higher to build up in the north. It does pay to own your building, even if you have a mortgage on it in this business. Restaurants make 2 to 4% nowadays. I never built this restaurant to make money. I built it as a brand. I built it to draw people to this spot to have the best quality food and service they can find in the north. And then to use that to sort of parlay it into other projects, which Buster's is one of them. We had intentions of building a food truck to take the brand farther afield and to get into catering. And because there's a lack of caterers here, there's definitely lots of business. There's lots of business in many of these small towns, but you have to niche market. You have to really know your market. You have to know what's there. I came here going, is this possible? It's certainly not possible if the town was the same sort of mentality that it was when I grew up here. It's just not enough sophisticated people to know even what they're seeing in a restaurant like this. My parents would have felt out of place in this restaurant. They would enjoy it in the end, but they would have felt nervous and a little put out by how fancy it would appear to them. So it really pays to know your market. I came into it going, I'm going to bet there are X number of people. I looked at the age ranges. I went, how many of these people are from the area, have moved away to the city, gone to a college or university, gotten their degree, spent time traveling, have eaten and drank at great restaurants and bars. Now they've come home and there's nothing like that. And they wish there was. And then how many people are from the city that moved here for work, whatever, and they're going, gee, I wish there was something decent to go to where I could get reasonable food in a city, urban-type atmosphere and really have a great night out and not feel like I'm missing Toronto or Montreal or whatever the case may be. That was the two primary groups of people that I was looking for. And we have them in droves. And there's enough of them here to support us. We have people that come in two and three and four times a week, every single week. That's their getaway. 
they step through the doors here, like stepping out of the north, stepping into Toronto. That great of an experience, because that's what you're really doing in restauranting. It's not just how good is the food, just how good is the service. It's how good of an experience you're giving them. You're allowing them to escape whatever they need to escape from for a short period of time while they're here in the restaurant and really and truly relax and enjoy themselves. And that's hospitality. That's what we've achieved. Do the research. Really understand your market. Really understand what you're going to sell. Keep your offerings to a minimum. You can't be everything to everybody. That's guaranteed failure. Understand that you got to say no a lot sometimes. I gave a talk to a corporation here where they were asking, what's the key to the success of this restaurant? I said, we said no. We said no a lot. And the reality is the customer isn't always right. And we, in fact, they're rarely right. The reality is, is that you have to have what you have on offer has to be very clearly defined. Then what you're willing to do has to be very clearly defined, as well as what you're not willing to do. In that way, you're going to find your core clientele faster. You're going to engender a loyalty from them quicker, and you're going to have much more success in a shorter period of time. If you're going to struggle trying to, well, let's try this. Okay, that wasn't really working. Let's do all gluten-free next week and then see how that goes. Well, people will never figure out who you are or what you are or what you're capable of doing. We stuck it out from the beginning and we said no a lot. No, we don't do Pepsi. We don't do Coke. No, we don't sell Budweiser. We sell high-quality, small-batch cane sugar sodas. We sell only premium liquors. We don't use lemon juice out of a bottle. We squeeze lemons for cocktails. You know, it's just, it was on and on and on. And, and for the first little while, it was, felt like we were saying no a lot in the restaurant. But it quickly weaned out those people that really don't get it, really don't understand what we're doing, don't understand what we're about, and ultimately don't want to be here. It's not for them. And then that way, in 20 seats and 10 at the bar, we found our clientele pretty fast. Next thing you know, we're turning it over three times a night on a Friday, Saturday. So that's how we found success. That's more important than ever nowadays is to really find your niche and be confident that you're correct in what you're doing. I get a reputation for putting blinders on. And I have a goal that's five years down the road. I'm going to put blinders on and I'm not going to let people distract me from that goal. You have a very short period of time to achieve some clear success that you're going to be able to use as a marketable resource going forward. And that's got to be done in a hurry. Well, thank you very much, Jerry, for speaking with me today. I'm excited about the next time I go to New Liskard for work because usually I would stop at the Tim's by the highway and just keep going on my journey. So thanks for giving uh, people a great reason to come enjoy the downtown there. I think what you've done is remarkable. Yeah, it's we've had people up from Toronto just drove here just to eat. And I'm going, five and a half hours, you came to a restaurant to eat? And they go, yep, saw something about you in the Globe and Mail. Here we are. Somebody was in Thunder Bay and they were taking a tour of Ontario and someone in Thunder Bay told them, have you heard of La Tactan? And they went, no, what the hell is that? And they said, it's a restaurant in Haleberry. Where the hell is Haleberry? They had to show them on a map and they drove all the way over the north. And this young couple and they stayed like three days and ate here every night. That's the way of the world, I guess. And we're getting national attention now. You know, we're starting to get a little more attention. I think it's good for the area. More and more stores are opening up here. People's property values are going up. And, uh, and of course, our taxes are going up. <laughs> of course. Thanks so much, Jerry. It's been a pleasure. Bye now. You're welcome. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. We can clearly see that Jerry's passion, creativity, and leadership certainly outweighs where his restaurant is located to draw people to Haleybury off the highway. Maybe you have some ideas about how northern communities can become tourist magnets or how we can support entrepreneurs like Jerry. We'd like to hear from you and what you thought about today's program. We are on Facebook and Instagram at The Packsack Project. 
And you can also find us on Twitter at the Pod. If you're not on social media, you can email us a question at thepacksackproject at gmail.com. To find more episodes, head to nordicinstitute.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. We'd like to thank those who made this episode possible. Editing by Grace Sang, music from Frank Duresti, tech support from Mark Laporte. Thanks for joining us.